0: Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see uh, all of you here. We've had a wonderful time uh, of worship. I so much appreciate Andrew uh, leading us in this time of worship. As Joe mentioned just a moment ago, please keep the mylums in your prayers. They're uh, dealing with the aftermath of uh, the loss of Karen's mother, and so I know they'll need our prayerful support uh, in the days and, and weeks to come. Uh, but certainly appreciate Andrew. I uh, appreciate Bruce for leading us in that time of prayer, and then and then for Wayne. Uh, leading us as we gathered around uh, the table together there. So uh, today, as, as Joe already mentioned, we're continuing this, this series we began last week uh, on the, the nature of discipleship. And we're, we're talking about what it means for us to know Jesus and to trust Jesus and to follow Jesus. And so if you, you have your Bibles today, I'd like to ask you to go ahead and get those ready. We're going to look at a couple of passages from Luke's Gospel. Really, over the next several weeks, we'll spend our time uh, working through luke and and kind of using luke as a a field guide for us as we think about the the nature of discipleship and today what i'd really like for us to do is to lay out some of the core principles that luke uh, gives us about the nature of discipleship so you can go ahead and get your bibles there to luke we'll dive into some text in just a moment just a couple of things here as we as we kind of get started Um, did you know that the word disciple is used 269 times in the new testament would you have guessed it was that many (laughs) Uh, that's a lot there's a lot of references to disciples to uh, discipleship in the pages of the new testament just by a point of contrast the word christian is only found three times in the new testament we probably use that term a lot more often than we use the term disciple or discipleship but just on sheer usage alone The volume of references to discipleship in the New Testament means it's really important for us to take our time to think through what the the scriptures are talking about when, when they speak of discipleship. Dallas Willard in his book, The Great Omission, he says this, the New Testament is a book about disciples, a book by disciples, and a book for disciples of Jesus Christ. And I think that is so true. So last week we kind of kicked all this off by talking about discipleship being the core mission of the church. We said that's what goes in the box. We told the story of uh, the Coca-Cola executives and their question, okay, what's our core mission? What's the one word that we would put in the box? And we said, well, according to to the New Testament, discipleship. Discipleship to Jesus is the word, the idea that goes in the box for us. It's the mission. We're called to be disciples and we're also called to make disciples so you'll remember last week we spent our time looking at luke chapter 5 and we looked at the call of simon peter there in luke chapter 5 and we came up with this definition based on what we read there and i think it holds throughout the new testament that a disciple is someone who knows jesus someone who trusts jesus and someone who follows jesus and we're going to hold that that definition here over the next several weeks as we think about what it means for us to be disciples of jesus it means that we have entered into a, a relationship with christ where we begin by knowing jesus we might even say knowing about jesus uh, i think it's fair to say that discipleship often begins as um, as a matter of the intellect it begins in the head so we begin to learn about jesus we read through the gospels and we see his teaching. so we begin to understand a little bit about who jesus is based on what he teaches we read about the miracles that he performs we look at the titles that the new testament writers ascribe to him the people who are interacting with jesus so they speak of him as savior and lord and messiah and all of those have rich meaning so So it's really important that we say a disciple is someone who knows Jesus or begins by knowing about Jesus. But here's the thing. It's not just that that, that discipleship is all about what you know. It certainly begins there. But we would say that Jesus is far more than a subject to be studied, right? That the point of all of that knowledge about Jesus is to get us to a point where we're ready to make a decision For Jesus we're going to decide something about who he is if his claims are true if he's really who he claims to be I think it was C.S. Lewis who years ago said famously that you have three options when it comes to Jesus Either he's a liar or he's a lunatic or he's really the Lord like he said he was but those are kind of your options And so the this information about Jesus knowing Jesus is is kind of like a, a, a Subject, you know intellectually cognitively understanding things about Jesus, all of that is intended to get us to a point where we're ready to decide something about Jesus. So that gets us into the the second part of this definition, that a disciple is not someone who just knows about Jesus, but someone who has trusted Jesus. We've reached a a point where we're ready to recognize his sovereignty. We're ready to recognize his rule over all things, including our lives. This is where that head knowledge moves down now into the level of the heart. This is where we submit ourselves over to the lordship of Jesus. That's what we confessed in our baptism. We confessed that we were no longer ruling over our lives. We confessed that, that we have ceded control now over to Jesus Christ in that very act of baptism. It pantomimes so beautifully this concept of dying and rising again. It tells the story Of Jesus that we have identified with and so when we reach this place where we're ready to trust in Jesus what we're saying is we're putting our lives up under his life we're no longer calling the shots the way that we would have ordinarily apart from Jesus but no we're taking our marching orders directly from him we've become apprenticed to Jesus we're looking to him now to give us instruction for what life is really all about rich Full, abundant meaningful life but that's not where discipleship ends in fact I would say that I think the New Testament would, would, would teach us that that's just the beginning that once we have decided to trust Jesus that then he always calls us he bids us to come and to, to follow him to come up out of that water to come you know away from that decision as a changed person and now we follow Jesus Out into the world becoming more and more the person he wants us to be so the disciples in the New Testament what do you see them doing well they're spending time with Jesus they're eating meals with Jesus they're walking with Jesus they're sitting down with him they're they're responding to his teaching they're listening to what he says there are times when they even ask questions when they're a little bit confused okay uh, Lord can you tell us a little more about this and then there's always this moment where Jesus is pushing them out and saying, okay now it's your turn you know, I've been doing and you've been watching, now it's time for you to go and to, and, and to do. So they go and they share that good news and that message, and all of that is kind of baked into what we mean by following Jesus. That's what discipleship is all about. So a disciple is someone who knows Jesus, someone who trusts Jesus, and someone who follows Jesus. And, and, and all of this is all of this is gets us back to the discipleship lessons in Luke's gospel. All the discipleship lessons in Luke's gospel come back to, really, three central principles. All the discipleship lessons in Luke's gospel come back to these principles. We could say that these are pillars of discipleship according to Luke's gospel. There we go. These are pillars of discipleship according to Luke's gospel. So throughout this discipleship series, each lesson, everything that we say about discipleship is going to come back to one of, at least one of, these three core principles about discipleship. Okay, and We'll spend the rest of our time today talking through uh, and looking at these three uh, core principles about discipleship. All right, so number one is this. Come help me, Joshua. Discipleship is a life centered on Jesus as Lord. So again, these are, I don't know if you could hear me there for not. I was just talking and talking, okay? But these are three ideas about discipleship that you find in Luke's gospel. And everything that we're going to say for the next several months is going to come back to one or more of these ideas. So number one, The first of these kind of core principles of discipleship is this, that discipleship is a life centered on Jesus as Lord, centered on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, uh, throughout the, the history of the church, the core confession of the church has been this, that Jesus is Lord. Those words may not sound very radical to you, uh, they may not sound, you know, very, uh, very subversive to us today. I've been singing those words and saying those words probably most of my, my life. But, but I can tell you uh, in the ancient world, in the Roman world, those words were deeply subversive. Because our spiritual ancestors, they came of age in a time, in a world where the primary claim was not Jesus is Lord, The primary claim in that world was that Caesar was Lord. That was this this tacit kind of declaration that Roman power was eternal. That the emperor, that Caesar was a divine being. That he was the son of God. And so the, the idea of lordship, as you'll see as we go through Luke's gospel together over these next few weeks... I hope we see that that idea of lordship is really prominent in Luke's writings. Uh, He uses the word Lord, Luke does, roughly 200 times in his writings. He uses that term about 100 times in his gospel, and he uses that term another 100 times or so in the sequel that he writes, the book of Acts. And I think as we look through all of those references to Jesus Christ as Lord, Luke is doing this. I think he is clearly presenting Jesus as a rival to Caesar. There's no other gospel that mentions Caesar by name. Okay, I don't know, for some of us, we would think, so what? Because that's 2,000 years ago, and we're all consumed in, you know, like our own little world. So we read these names, we read like genealogies, we read the names in the Bible, and we just kind of we glaze over until we come across one that we think is important, like Jesus, okay? But in the, in the ancient world, when they're reading these gospels, and, and Caesar makes an appearance, that's a big deal. You know, he's, he's the ruler of the world, he's hailed as a divine being, he's worshipped throughout the empire at temples, you know, everywhere. And so in Luke chapter 2, when Luke is writing and he mentions Caesar Augustus by name, and then he comes down toward the end of that chapter and he begins to tell us about what the angels declare about Jesus at his birth. We oftentimes read these passages of scripture at Christmas, but this is not just like Christmas card stuff, okay? Look at what it says in Luke 2. An angel of the Lord said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, and then this part is key, who is Christ the Lord. In the birth of Jesus, God is is giving notice that the reign of Caesar is over. In the birth of Jesus, God is, is sending his son to reclaim his rightful rule, to set the record straight. That the true son of God is not this human being who is hailed by all as the, the, the Lord. Caesar is Lord. No, no, no. Instead, the one true king is this child, this baby, who is a son of David, who is the Messiah, who is the Lord. He is the centerpiece of human history. And the earliest Christians faced incredible Uh, ostracization and and discrimination, the opposition that they faced because of their commitment to this claim. To the Romans, because the earliest Christians would not confess the lordship of Caesar, do you know what they were considered? They were considered atheists because they denied the lordship of Caesar. Tertullian is ancient church father, church writer. He wrote that Christians faced the accusation of treason most of all against the Roman religion because they refused to offer sacrifices to Caesar. Instead, they declared that Jesus was Lord. This is just an updated version of what we talked about a few weeks ago. In that book of Daniel, where Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they refuse to compromise in the face of their culture. Instead, instead of bowing down and bending the knee before Nebuchadnezzar, instead of, you know, giving in to the, uh, to the, to the cultural norms of that day, they said, no, we're going to live life differently. And it, roll the clock forward with what we're, we're talking about here in the context of the New Testament, we see much the same thing. When Paul visits, visits Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, some of the people in the city, they form a mob. And they attack the house of a man named Jason. And that's where Paul is staying at the time. And in Acts chapter 17, this is still Luke's writing, he tells us about this crowd. It says that these men, they come and they, they're, they're, you know, this mob is outside Jason's house. And this is, what they're, this is what they're yelling and screaming. These men who have turned the world upside down, talking about Paul, they've come here also. And then this. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This crowd shows up, you know, red-faced and screaming and and yelling uh, because these earliest believers rejected that that claim that Caesar was Lord. Uh, Clearly, what's going on in the New Testament is a, a religion that's far more than just something spiritual, meaning that it's just interior and it has no on the outside world at all. If that were the case, this mob would not show up, (laughs) all right, because who cares whatever you believe as long as you keep it on the inside. But that's not the case. These Christians are upsetting the cultural norms to a degree simply by refusing to accept that Caesar is Lord. Instead, they subscribe to a different point of view, that the true Lord of all things, was a Jewish rabbi who was crucified in Jerusalem. That was their shocking declaration, and people looked at them like they were crazy. These people come along and say, okay, it's not enough that they've upset the world, they've turned the world upside down. Now they're here with this message that Caesar isn't Lord, but instead it's truly Jesus. But they were committed to that. No matter the cost, they were committed to that. Sometimes I wonder if I would continue to believe in Jesus so ardently and so passionately. If if an angry mob showed up at my house with pitchforks because of what I believed. (laughs) For most of us, we've grown up in a place where it was safe. It was the cultural norm to believe in Jesus. But what if the tables were turned? Maybe maybe that's why we get so red-faced and angry when some of our rights are impinged upon just a little bit because we don't have the resistance that these earliest Christians did, because we're not used to people telling us, no, no, you're wrong, you're crazy. When the claim that Jesus is Lord has always been considered by the world to be crazy. Why do we expect the world to be anything other than the world? And why doesn't the church insist on being simply and only the church? I love this line that are spiritual forebears. We're so passionate, turning the world upside down because there's another king, and his name is Jesus. And we sit here and think, okay, what's for lunch? That's discipleship, folks. It's a life that is centered on Jesus. It says that Jesus, it demands my ultimate allegiance. It's a life that says, you know, all other commitments, pale in comparison to the commitment of jesus christ as lord saying that there's no other gods before him it's it's obedience to that greatest command to love the lord your god with all your heart all your soul all your mind and all your strength as we make our way through luke's gospel i hope that we'll see that the disciples are are constantly coming back to this they have a life that is centered on jesus Is your life centered on Jesus? Number two, the second of these these principles, Joshua, if you'll help me with this one. Number two, not only is discipleship a life centered on Jesus as Lord, but number two, discipleship is being changed to think and act like Jesus. Once our lives are centered upon Jesus, then we experience a change. And the, The more time we spend with Jesus, the more we begin to look like him, the more we begin to take on His qualities and and his characteristics Uh, we begin to to think like jesus as the mind of christ is formed in us as wayne reminded us as we were around the table just a few moments ago we begin to act like jesus more and more as, as his holy spirit bears fruit in our lives that discipleship is being changed to think and act like jesus this is what jesus says in luke chapter 6 verse 40 he says a disciple is not above his teacher but this, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher uh, Jesus compares discipleship to uh, a student completing the, the assignment that is given by his or her teacher but in this classroom in the, in the classroom of discipleship the, the aim is not simply to, to finish the assignment and move on right? Uh, Jesus doesn't assign busy work, if you want to put it that way, all right? But in the, in the classroom of, of discipleship, the goal here is much, much greater. Based on this teaching and others, I think we can say that, that the goal of discipleship is not simply to learn something new. Some of us kind of think that's the whole point here. It's just, it's all about like what you know and what you learn. Well, that's helpful, but, but that isn't the end-all, be-all. The goal of discipleship is this, it's to become someone new and in this case it's to become like jesus in this sense discipleship is a lifelong journey of transformation you know sometimes the gospel is presented to us as nothing more than hell insurance you know um in these presentations of the gospel the the ultimate goal is just going to heaven when you die with very little emphasis upon what happens in the here and now you know after your baptism this is what comes next right but the gospel thankfully is so much more than simply hell insurance in the gospel there's a lot in there that that tells us about the life that comes to us in the here and now not simply about what happens in the end and going to heaven when you die which by the way is a phrase you don't find in in your bible the gospel promises an abundant life and it promises that abundant life now John 10:10 10, 10, Jesus says I've come they may have life and that they may have it abundantly and Paul as he's preaching he's talking about the ministry of reconciliation that we have over in 2 Corinthians 5 he bleeds on over into chapter 6 and he says today is the day of salvation Every day can be the day of salvation for us if we're following Jesus, if we're growing in Christlikeness. It's not something that's simply reserved for us in heaven someday, but abundant life comes bleeding into the present right now for disciples. It's right there. He's made everything available to us for life and godliness, Simon Peter tells us. And if the gospel was simply about going to heaven when we died, if that's all it was about, there would really be no need for the Holy Spirit to indwell us, right? I mean, in those presentations of the gospel, you don't don't need the Holy Spirit living in you right now. It's just about hang on by your fingernails and someday he'll redeem you out of this world. But the promise of the gospel, the gospel promise, includes the gift of God's Spirit living within us, producing Christ-likeness in us. The Holy Spirit plays a crucial role in the gospel as it is spelled out in the scriptures. Because the Holy Spirit is God's agent of transformation, living in you, bearing fruit in you, shaping you more fully into the image of Jesus Christ. It's because the path of discipleship leads to Christ's likeness. We're on this journey where He is out front. And he is leading us and we're headed somewhere. And the ultimate destination there is is a life that looks like Jesus. We'll get into that more fully uh, next week. But for now, just remember this discipleship is this process of transformation. We're being changed to look and think and act like Jesus. So are you being changed by your relationship to Jesus? Number three, last one Joshua. Discipleship is being committed to the mission of Jesus. It's being committed to the mission of Jesus. As we're changed to think and act like Jesus we begin to adopt his attitudes and his actions. The things that matter to Jesus begin to matter to us. As you read through luke and acts you see this happening over and over the things that happen in jesus uh, ministry the things going on in his life they bleed on over into the ministry of the church so in the book of acts excuse me in the book of luke you see that the holy spirit is actively involved in the conception of jesus and you go to the beginning of the book of acts and what do you see well the holy spirit is actively involved in the conception of the church Uh, over in luke's gospel jesus prays more in that gospel than he does any other gospel and so what do you see happening in Acts? We see the disciples gathering together and they're praying. So much so that, you know, buildings shake because of their prayers. Wouldn't you like to pray that way, right? Uh, over in, in, in Luke, Jesus has such a heart for the poor and the lowly. He says more about ministry to the poor in Luke than he does in any other. And then when you get over here to Acts, what do you see the early church doing? They're like selling land and giving of their means to help the poor in their community. And so there's this this incredible consistency between the things that Jesus is doing and the things that his disciples are doing. And most of all, the mission of Jesus in Luke, he's calling disciples to himself. And in the book of Acts, you see the same thing. You see them uh, calling people into discipleship because they take their cues directly from Jesus. Look here in Luke 24, at the end of Luke's gospel. This is the risen Christ. And he says this to his followers. He said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and then he he says this to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And then this, he says, you are witnesses of these things risen Christ gives his followers a mission and it's a mission we've inherited as well to proclaim the availability of repentance and forgiveness of sin we are to be witnesses of these things all of that kind of summarizes for us what uh, Luke is getting at when he talks about discipleship so we'll, we'll come back to this over the course of the next several weeks but it's It's a life that is centered upon the lordship of Jesus. It is a life of being changed to think and act like Jesus. And it is being committed to the mission of Jesus. In his book, Mere Discipleship, Lee Camp tells a story of Dirk Willems, who was an Anabaptist martyr who lived in the Netherlands in the 1500s. And Willems was part of a group that rejected the Roman Catholic teaching on infant baptism. They said, you know, we hear this passage in the New Testament, we we, we read about baptism, and we don't see uh, anything other than just believers' baptism. So so they decided as adults to reject that infant baptism as part of their, their upbringing, and instead they were baptized as adults. And so they came to be known, the group came to be known as Anabaptists, which simply means one who baptizes again and although this was the only charge that you could bring against uh, the anabaptists they were branded as heretics this violation of roman catholic teaching was enough to have the anabaptists sentenced to death so a lot of times the women in the group were were, they take them out and they would drown them while the men they would burn at the stake and according to one source these anabaptists were so passionate in their proclamation of the lordship of jesus even leading them out you know marching them out to their death they were so passionate about that that the the roman catholic authorities decided to have their mouths clamped down so they couldn't win any more converts as they were being led out to their deaths and one such anabaptist who was burned at the stake was a man named dirk willems willems was captured and imprisoned in his hometown in the netherlands Knowing that he would be burned alive if he remained there in prison, Willems made a rope from strips of cloth and he used it to lower himself down over the prison wall. But but as soon as he did, he was spotted by a guard who who gave chase. And during the escape, uh, Willems dashed across a frozen pond to safety, but the guard, the guard, however, fell through the ice and he called out for help. And when Willems remembered the command that Jesus gave to show love even to your enemies, he immediately turned back and he pulled the man out of the frigid waters and saved his life. And when the chief official arrived on the scene, the guard who had been saved, he argued pretty strongly that Willems should be released, but but then the official reminded him that that he had made a a pledge, that he had sworn as an officer of the peace to defend and uphold the law. So the guard seized Dirk Willems and took him back to prison where he was condemned to death for being rebaptized, for conducting secret church services in his home, and for allowing others to be rebaptized there as well. And after stating all of these so-called crimes, The record of his sentencing concludes this way. All of this is contrary to our holy Christian faith and to the decrees of his royal majesty and ought not to be tolerated but severely punished for an example to others. And so Dirk Willems was burned at the stake on May 16th, 1569. He died for saying that there was another king. Not his royal majesty who's mentioned in the decree here uh, certainly not the pope at the time or anyone other than jesus christ but even in death he remains a great example of discipleship because his life was centered on jesus to the point that death did not scare him he was changed to think and act like jesus Saving his enemy even though it cost him his life. And he was committed to the mission of Jesus where souls mattered more to him than security and safety. Souls mattered more to him than security and safety. That, I think, is another fitting picture of discipleship doesn't come from the gospel of Luke but I think it's informed by it so the question for us today then is what will we do with this call to discipleship Will we allow our lives to be further centered on Jesus and his lordship and that ultimate claim that trumps all other claims will we allow his Holy Spirit within us to change us so that we begin to think and act like Jesus we're not content to just sit here and wait for heaven someday That we live as active participants in the kingdom of God right now. And will we be committed to the mission of Jesus, no matter the cost? I hope and pray that we're ready to answer that that in the affirmative. This word is given in the name of Jesus Christ, the sovereign Lord who makes all things new. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's stand together now and let's sing.